Our scripture reading this week is taken from Acts 14, um, verse 19 to 23. Let's read together in the count of one through three. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the God, the, um, the Lord. Let me be seated. It's just great to be here. It's a privilege for me to be invited to speak and share the word of God to all of you. So thank you, Pastor Yosia. Uh, Pastor Sam, Ibu Lydia, uh, I thought today before we uh, start to ponder about the words that we just read, I would like to call upon the four volunteers that have been brief uh, so they know what to do. This will help us, I tell you that. Um, so thank you for the volunteers. So I'll just uh, ask them to come forward. And then he was literally not moving at all. <laughs> Until a few moments later, he gained consciousness. And then <laughs> he stood up and went back to the city. Let's give them a round of applause. So I, I hope what, what you just saw made uh, what was read before a little bit more visible, more literal to you. And I will refer to that uh, obviously later in the sermon so that what they did uh, did not go in vain. <laughs> but let us pray before we uh, listen and uh, ponder on the word of God. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever and sanctifies us in your truth, your worth. Your word is truth, and your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning our thoughts and the intention of our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that uh, this afternoon, what we hear is not just a new intellectual in information for us, but it is a spiritual formation when the truths of the gospel becomes real to us one more time. So as the scripture is explained to us, may you speak to us personally in our own personal context, in our own personal struggles, and move our hearts to love our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of all nations, in 
whose name we pray. Amen. So friends, uh, I come from Melbourne. I have a wife and two kids who are now uh, grown-ups. And, and I'm here to, um, to share about God's Word, and I was asked to speak on the Pentecost this morning, right? So I thought in the afternoon I'm going to do something on the book of Acts as well. I'm, I'm choosing Acts 14 as one of the uh, texts that clearly shows what a uh, spirit-filled gospel ministry looks like. So on, on my um, day job, Monday to Friday, I'm not actually involved um, uh, in the church full-time, but I do full-time work at university, right? I do research around the topic of leadership. And one of the most interesting things that I uh, read about leadership research is that they, they found this thing called the crucibles, right? The crucibles means the trying experiences that people have and how they respond to those difficult moments in their lives will help determine whether they are leaders material or not, right? So Warren Bennis, for example, a leadership scholar, he said that everyone is tested by uh, trying circumstances in life. But when they can extract wisdom and strength from, from those difficult moments, they become leaders. And only, he said, 10% of uh, the people who have gone through the six uh, significant uh, uh, down um, periods in their lives can actually um, go back up and learn something positive out of them. Those people will be leaders. Now, that reminds me of what a, a philosopher uh, once said. The name is uh, Nietzsche. He said that what does not kill you, anyone knows that? Makes you stronger. Of course, you know, because there's a popular song sung by, what's the name? Um, hmm? Yes, uh, that's right, Clarkson, right? Uh, anyone wants to come forward? And <laughs> But I was wondering whether that is actually accurate, that what does not kill you makes you stronger. Maybe you are stronger on the outside, Right? But in the inside, typically what people experience when they have difficult circumstances in their lives, yes, they might look stronger, but inside they become more cynical. They become more uh, skeptics. They become more cautious. So, for example, if a friend of yours, you know, lied to you and took your money, right, the next time you want to start a friendship with someone else, you become extra careful. Because I don't want to have that same experience again that I had uh, last year with this guy. So I want to be careful with this person. So what does not kill me actually makes me more cautious now. Right? doesn't mean that you're going to be stronger in every single dimension. Right? In fact, the modern culture that we live in, we tend to um, be uh, as far as, uh, away as possible from suffering. That we just don't like pain. Right? We, we, we say no pain, no gain. We know that in our heads, but... You know, in our hearts of hearts, we try to avoid any pain, any suffering, because we want a pain-free uh, life. That, that's, that's what we we after. And therefore, we hear from philosophers like Nietzsche that, yes, suffering produces a character strength. Suffering produces uh, all the 
positive um, changes that you want to have in your life. But is it really true that suffering can uh, result in those positive things? I mean, what, what guarantees that? So uh, outside the Christian faith, I do not think there is a rock-solid foundation that will guarantee, yes, you can suffer and then you can gain something positive out of it. What's the basis of that? I think it's ridiculous for people like Warren Bennis or uh, Nietzsche to say that what does not kill you makes you stronger. There is no basis for that. Yet, in the Bible, we find that actually there is a basis for that because when Jesus died for our sins and was straight erased from our, for our righteousness, right? He showed us one thing, that he suffered from us to be able to do what he had done for us. Not so that we live a suffering-free lives, but so that when we suffer, we are becoming more like him. See, that is something that you won't find outside the Christian faith. So today, if you are not a Christian, you are sure that you are not a Christian, or you are not sure that you are a Christian, right? Consider that Christianity provides this rock-solid foundation that suffering in Christ's name will have positive meaning, and that positive meaning because we are turned to be more Christ-like. So let, let's uh, look at uh, the basis for that in Acts uh, um, chapter 13 that we saw before. Acts is a story of the unstoppable gospel that radically transformed the Greco-Roman world in a matter of 200 uh, years, which is what I shared this morning. So if you, uh, if you like Acts 1 to 7, was a story about how the church was established, 8 to 12, story about how the church uh, gets scattered, and Acts in until now, is about how the church has been extended to the very end of the age. And this is where we live in, right? That's from AD 47 to uh, today. So if you, if you look at the, uh, the, the book of Acts, you will see that uh, the Great Commission was carried out by the early believers because of the persecution that they experience as people who believe in Christ. If you uh, go through the book of Acts and you uh, arrive at uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, for example, it says that then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church to Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So they flee because they had to flee and got scattered to various places because of the persecution, but not the apostles. It's the common believers. So if you ask me, who got to build churches and got the gospel out in the open, in the marketplace, it's just these common uh, believers in Acts uh, chapter 8, but they never saw themselves as refugees. They were missionaries. They were accidental missionaries. They brought and shared the seed of the gospel of Christ. They always bloomed wherever they were planted. So what does gospel ministry look like? Well, if you read uh, Acts chapter 14, uh, in verse 22, we read before, 
uh, or read for us uh, these words. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in their faith. They appointed elders in every church. They prayed and they fasted and they committed uh, other people to the Lord. Right? These are the gospel ministry. So in every church of Jesus Christ until today, you see this stuff, they still are being done, right? You strengthen the souls of the disciples. You encourage people to continue to grow in their faith, right? This, this is gospel ministry. But what I want to emphasize today is how suffering should be the badge of Christianity. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer always said. Suffering is the badge of Christianity. If, it's, if we have a symbol somewhere on a, a, a clothing, it's, it's suffering, you know, um, so to speak. So let, let's look at where we are now. Acts 14 uh, found Apostle Paul in Lystra. Now, Lystra, let me show you a map, which is quite uh, accurate. <coughs> now, what will make this, uh, make this very confusing is that there are two Antiochs. And in fact, there are many Antiochs because of the uh, egocentric uh, orientation of the people who uh, named these cities uh, uh, in the same way, right? But uh, Paul started, if you like, from the Syrian Antioch, and then he went and preached the gospel with Barnabas to Cyrus, and then he arrived in this uh, area uh, called another, another area called Antioch, right? Uh, and this is in Pisidia, which is a completely different region. And from there, uh, he went to uh, Lyconian uh, area, and that is in southern uh, Galatia in Turkey and in Ankara today, and he went to Iconium first, and then to Lystra and to Derby, right? So this 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 this, this is the, the the area where we found uh, Paul in Acts uh, 14, and this is part of his first missionary uh, journey. And Lystra is completely a pagan uh, province, a pagan area. They did not know God. And it was said by a commentator, the Romans ruled the land of Lystra, the Greeks controlled the commerce, and the Jews had little influence. In fact, these people were half barbaric, right? And, uh, and obviously, when uh, there was no um, synagogue uh, there, Paul typically went to the marketplace and shared the gospel with them. And then we found from the first... Uh, First that we uh, read before, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Now, when, when it says the, the Jews from Antioch, that's from the Pisidian uh, uh, Antioch, right? So they've been following Paul. So if you, um, if you read the first... Uh, 50 of chapter 13, these people from Pisidian Antioch, so bear with me for a second when I uh, try, try to set the scene for you. The Jews incited this uh, devout women of high standing, it says in verse 50, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So they had this intention to actually murder Paul and Barnabas. Right? And, and when they went out, uh, Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, they actually did not just give up their plan. So that's why we, we uh, and I tried to do some calculation, right? The distance from Antioch, the Pisidian Antioch over there on the uh, uh, upper left-hand side there on the map, the distance with, uh, from Antioch uh, to Iconium is about 100 
41 kilometers. Right, those of you who are uh, good with math. From Iconium to Lystra is 38 kilometers. So the total distance from uh, Pisidian Antioch to Lystra is 179 kilometers. These guys were so intentional to persecute Paul. So much so that someone wrote, haters of Christianity often display more zeal in destroying the faith than Christians do in protecting the faith. They were more committed in opposing the gospel than we do in advancing the gospel. And if you, if you, if you uh, read uh, chapter 14 in the earlier uh, verses, you would know that the people in Lystra were going to worship Paul because they thought Paul and Barnabas were the uh, manifestations of the Greek gods, Hermes and Zeus. And that's why uh, there was a legend that Zeus and Hermes uh, visited the land disguised as mortals, but no one gave them any hospitality except for one older couple. And Zeus and Hermes were so angry, they wiped out the whole population. So now when they saw what uh, Paul did, healing a man in Lystra, they thought we had to treat them well, just in case they're going to be angry with us again and wiped out uh, our generation once again. So in the Greek myth, you know, Zeus is a god of thunder. Hermes is a god of commerce, the speaker of the house, if you like, in the uh, whole Greek gods. So Paul was going to be worshipped, and then he said, no, 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 don't do that. But what happened then, when we arrived at the text that we uh, just read, um, the Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch people, they provoked people in Lystra, and now they were united to persecute Paul. And that's why we read in uh, verse uh, 19 that they stoned Paul um, and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So I want to draw four lessons from what we just uh, read. The first one, gospel ministry cannot be done without risk and sacrifice. See, Paul um, experienced this near-death um, experience because he was being stoned by, uh, because of the ministry of, of the gospel. And this is not a hyperbole language. It's not a sermon illustration. It's a real um, stoning. It actually happened. It's part of the suffering that Paul experienced as he lived and preached the gospel. And uh, there were three things that confirmed that this was a true experience. The first is what Jesus himself said about Paul when Paul experienced conversion in Acts 9. Jesus said, right from the moment of Paul's conversion, the following, go for, he, uh, go for he is chosen as an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So when, when Paul was called by God, miraculously, he was having this special message that he's going to suffer in my name and for my name, right? The second thing we knew that the stoning was real because what 
Paul himself wrote in Galatians 6:17. He wrote, "I bear the, in my body the marks of Jesus." So what he had in mind, commentators were almost um, uh, unanimously agree that what he had in mind is this very incident that he was being stoned. In 2 Corinthians 11:25, he again recalled the experience in his long catalog of suffering. He said, five times I received uh, at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Is that experience there in Acts 14 in Lystra. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And you can read the entire uh, things that he experienced. But the, the other thing is that there was a confirmation that the Jewish uh, people had a law in, in Mishnah that stoning was actually a Jewish punishment. So it's probably the Jews who led uh, the way uh, in hurting, uh, hurling the stones at Paul, and soon they all join in. So the Mishnah tells, that, uh, tells us that the drop from the stoning place was twice the height of a man. So it has to be done. Uh, around four meters uh, higher, and then the stone was thrown uh, to uh, the person. One of the witnesses would start by pushing the criminal off from behind so that he fell face forward onto the rocks, and then he would be turned over on his back, and if he died from the fall, that was sufficient. If not, the second witness was to take a large stone and drop it on his heart. If this caused death, that would be the end of it. But if it's not, then the accused would be stoned by all the congregation of Israel. And that's what Paul experienced. Basically what you saw before on the stage, right? Except that's a paper stone, <laughs> thankfully. So you see, friends, that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? I don't know how long you have been following the Lord and whether or not you have experienced any sort of suffering for Him, in Him. But eventually, if you haven't, you will. If you are so committed in the gospel ministry, you will experience suffering for Christ. Because gospel ministry that stretches you to the breaking point and doesn't break will grow only stronger, but also only in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's very natural. Even Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? And I think God is intentionally driving all of his children to this very point that we all say, who is sufficient for these things? I've been investing my life in this person and now he's betraying me by talking about all the bad things behind my back. He stepped me from the back, right? Who is sufficient for these things? But you know, he customized every single suffering so that when we do come to that very place, we can say, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that's not human when you say that. That's divine. That's not natural for us to say that. That's supernatural. Only the Holy Spirit can enable you to say this, this strength in a weakness, power of the Holy Spirit, that keeps you going. So, friends, that, that's, that's the first lesson. 
that uh, you can expect that you are involved in a gospel ministry, it cannot be done without risks and without sacrifices. The second point that I would like uh, us to pay attention to uh, is that um, when, when Paul um, did all things that he did and he suffered for that, where, where, did, where, where did he get that? If you look, again read the whole uh, book of Acts, you will see that when uh, you got to Acts 7, Paul actually saw Stephen being stoned exactly like him. But he was not uh, on the same team. He wore the same, uh, a different jersey at the time, right? He was on the other side. So let, let me, uh, let me uh, read uh, uh, what happened there in Acts 7. 55. But he, Stephen, that is, the first martyr in the church of Jesus Christ, when, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then continue on, as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then the last thing he said before he died, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, reminding us of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. So I imagine the sharp pain that Paul felt when the first stone hit his back or his face. Not sure where, whether it hit, hit his face or his back, but I'm sure that first stone reminded him of Stephen, who was being stoned under the supervision of Paul. It was Paul who said, do it. Do it now. Let's end his life. Because he was a member of, a, of the Sanhedrin. But the last breath that Stephen had was not used to curse Paul. It was used to pay, uh, pray for his forgiveness. And Paul did see something in Stephen that he never had before. He was so successful as a religious leader. He was young. He was ambitious. He was the ideal uh, son-in-law of every uh, parent. Uh, you know, every parent can dream to have son-in-laws like Paul, right? But he had something uh, great that uh, he wanted to, uh, um, he did not have something great that he wanted to have, and that is something that he saw in Stephen. And apparently Stephen, when he was about to die, he looked into the heavens and he saw Jesus, right? And that's why he was smiling, full of the Holy Spirit, and he can pray for Paul's forgiveness. So when Stephen was willing to suffer because of Christ, Paul did the same, and so now is every believer throughout the ages. The third uh, thing that I, would, I want you to um, learn is that uh, you can look at it in verse 20. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. Now, th th this was uh, something beyond 
my uh, uh, understanding because I, I try to imagine, right? The, the Jewish law actually says that when someone was being stoned, that's a most reliable way to make sure that he's dead. Because otherwise they will keep stoning him. Right? Now, when, when he was dragged out of the city, people thought that he was dead. So much so that a lot of commentators said that he was actually, you know, no longer uh, having any breath. He died, and then God raised him up. But I think that that's not the case, because otherwise he would have written about it, right? He was thought to be dead. He was completely unconscious. But then he regained consciousness. And what did he do? He did not run as far as possible from Lystra. He did not run as fast as possible. I would have done it if I were Paul. This tankless people, I've given my life, everything that I have for them. And now this is how they repay me. And then you pray for God's fire to come upon them and... uh, got rid of them once and for all, but not, not, not Paul. What he did was he ran back to Lystra, the town where he was stoned. He went back to that town. He did not flee the city that stoned him. He immediately went back to it, and then he ministered to the very people who might be stoning him. I mean, is that natural? No, that's, that's completely supernatural. So here is the, the third thing that uh, I want you to uh, learn. The determining factor of when we stop a ministry is not our di- disappointment. It's not rejection of others. It's not hardship, but it's the will and guidance of God. See, friends, a lot of uh, young people um, that I know, they are in, still in ministry, and I'm thankful to them, but I know a few friends after a few years of not uh, keeping in touch with them, and one day I saw them, and they told me I'm no longer in ministry because I try to give my time and my energy and my money, and I give everything. And then they misunderstood me. They stepped me from the back. I did not get anything, but I got all the negative things. So it's, it's something that is so disappointing. If this is what Christianity is all about, I'm not going to be... Uh, uh, going to church again, and then they just left the church. So, you know, I think uh, disappointments, um, pain, suffering, they stop people from getting involved in God's ministry. Uh, but that's only human, right? But if you do, and this is something that we discussed in the morning, if you are filled by the Holy Spirit, right, you will understand uh, this very point, that it's not you it's not your disappointment that will determine this is it. This is the end of it. No, you have to keep going. Because God said this is just another milestone, another training, another moment where you have to learn to rely on me. So that when you say, who is sufficient for these things? You're not sufficient, but I am. Yeah. And in your weakness, I will show you my strength. So that's why... He kept going. And the fourth thing that I want you to uh, learn, and this is something uh, remarkable when I learn about this, this text, um, 
it drove me into tears, actually, uh, because unbeknown to Paul, when he was stoned in the public in Lystra for the sake of the gospel, and then he went immediately back into the town to serve that same gospel to the people who might be involved in stoning him, there was a young man who observed him from afar, a young man like, you know, uh, like you, perhaps, in this room. But he was so inspired by what he saw in Paul. Now, this young fellow lived in Lystra, and his name was Timothy. So when Timothy observed him, he knew what Jesus meant to Paul. He may not know Stephen at the time, but he knew Paul. And I'm sure he uh, shook his head in disbelief. This crazy man, he was being stoned, and yet he came back and ministered to us. So whoever he's serving must be something. But obviously, he's got a grandma and mother who feared the Lord, and uh, he was taught in the faith of God, and he knew this is uh, Jehovah that Paul served, and that made a huge impact on Paul, and now it made a huge impact uh, in Timothy's life. So that's why when Paul returned to Lystra in his second missionary journey in Acts 16, verse 1, he met Timothy. And right there and then, he gave his life for the gospel ministry, and he became his mentee. Right? He was left in Ephesus. He uh, started uh, the Church of Philippi and so on and so forth. So what I'm saying is, um, here's the point. Stephen's suffering produces Paul, and Paul's suffering produces Timothy. Conclusion, ministry that does not involve suffering will not produce any fruit. Ministry that costs nothing will accomplish nothing. I've been trying to live by that principle, ministry that costs nothing, accomplish nothing. I was amazed at uh, what Frank Tillman wrote about uh, Paul in his commentary in, uh, uh, about uh, the, uh, the letter to the Philippians. He said this, 20 centuries ago, itinerant tent maker was tossed into prison for creating a public disturbance. There he spent considerable time dictating a letter that might have taken a dozen sheets of stiff, scratchy paper. Today, few people would recognize the name of the Roman emperor at the time. And although Nero was a prolific author, nothing of his literary output remains. Paul's name, on the other hand, is instantly recognized by millions and existing copies of his letters to the Philippians in many languages run easily into the millions. Indeed, the time has come when people call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. I mean, nobody here, I hope, have a son called Nero because you wouldn't, you wouldn't use that as your son's name. But how many people call Paul today? I mean, that's the impact of someone like Paul being used by God in the gospel ministry because he knew that the more he suffered, the more he became like his Savior. 
Now, friends, I don't expect that in Australia you're going to be stoned like Paul because of your faith in Christ, because you are involved in gospel ministry. There are laws in, in this land that will prevent anyone who will try to do that for you. But the stones that you will get from uh, being involved in gospel ministry will come in various forms. See, in my case, um, I was involved in a gospel ministry for some time now, and uh, there was a time where uh, I was uh, misunderstood, and uh, one of the religious uh, leaders that I was dealing with completely misunderstood me and persecuted me emotionally and pick a name um, to characterize what I did, something that is purely uh, hurting, I guess. Now, in Indonesian, it's anjing yang tidak pernah kawin. And I try to translate that. I think it's a stray dog who's about to mate. I mean, that's just a, uh, not only derogatory, but I think it's really a belittling. It's, it's, it's just a phrase that is so hurting. Right? And I was um, in a valley of the shadow of death, basically, for about eight months. So I went um, away from ministry. I said I didn't want to uh, be involved in any kind of ministry because of that uh, religious leader's uh, remark. And in that eight-month, nine-month period, I went into the book of Jeremiah completely healed me because Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, right? I thought I was weeping a lot because of that. It was just so hurtful. And then there's a verse in the book of Jeremiah that stayed with me until now, 12, uh, 5, it says, if you have raised with man on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? So you're dealing with men and you're disappointed by what they did or what they said to you. How are you going to compete with horses, says the Lord, to Jeremiah and now to me. And I thought, Lord, it's just not possible for me to compete with horses. I can't even compete with men. And there are evil men in this world, including in churches. And I know that now, Lord. But if you want me to continue on, you have to help me in my weakness. And he did in that nine-month period. So friends, uh, what uh, we know now as uh, Christ Jesus who came for our sins, he did that by suffering for us. He died to bore our sin. He died to take our judgments. He died to kill death. But that's only possible because he suffered. The God who is such a you know, glorious God, he became... Humbled to the grave, which is what we sang before. You know, uh, our Muslim friends always say, Allahu Akbar, God is great. But Christians do not say that, not because God is great, but we admire the greatness of God in the tininess of God. He became humans. He became an embryo. And he had to go through every single suffering that you and I had. So that not because, uh, so that we are suffering free when we follow him, but so that when we suffer, we know 
we're becoming more like him. So I would just want to uh, encourage you today to come to the Lord and say, well, this, all this time, I, I never come across any suffering in my life because of I, I follow Christ. I do suffer for a lot of things, uh, inflation and, you know, uh, my boss that doesn't understand me at work. and I suffered for many things, but not for the gospel. Well, I invite you to do that. I invite you to experience this, this gospel ministry and the suffering that comes with it. And you will see the beauty of the Lord in a different dimension. You know, completely, and you'll be cared for in ways that you would never imagine can happen to you. Do you want to take that next level of following Christ? I mean, you're still, you're still young, most of you here. I'm older than you, so I can say with utmost certainty that you will never look back and regret that you are suffering for Christ Jesus. So let us uh, bow our heads and we ask the Lord uh, for our help. Lord, our sins are too many, but your mercy is more. Our sins are too great, but Jesus is our greatest Savior. That's why, Lord, our lips are praising you, because your steadfast love is better than life. So you suffer for us, not because so that we are immune from it, but so that we know there's nothing can touch us without your permission. And when you do permit for suffering to happen because of the gospel that we serve, Lord, that makes us to be a better Christian, humbler Christian, a Christian who relies on you, not our strength, to be more like you, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.